0: Why don't you go ahead and take your Bibles? Go to Genesis chapter thirteen, and as you make it to Genesis thirteen, let me encourage you then to grab your phone. It's unusual. Um, I want to um, start just by um, spending a few moments talking about Memorial Day. Just some some seldom known facts about Memorial Day facts that I think the average American is completely unaware of, myself included. So tomorrow will be the 153rd observance of Memorial Day. Memorial Day was born out of the tragedy of the Civil War. More than 620,000 young Americans gave their lives across the country. General John Logan in 1868 called for this day to occur on May 30th of every year in order to decorate the graves of those people who who died in the war from nearly every city across the country, every town, every village. So during the first Memorial Day uh, observation at Arlington Cemetery, uh, a senator who would soon be president named James Garfield got up and addressed the crowd of nearly 5,000 people. And it's funny, when you read the historian's accounts of this moment, pretty much everybody says he talked too long. I know nothing of that. Um, when he was done, those 5,000 people who were in, in, in attendance spread out around the cemetery and decorated the tombs of both Union and Confederate soldiers. So, so here's the trivia of Memorial Day, which actually should be more than trivia for us. The original name of Memorial Day was Decoration Day. It was a day that was set aside to honor the fallen men and women Uh, of war, by decorating their, their tombs, their gravestones. On Memorial Day, the American flag should be hung at half staff until noon. And at noon, the flag is supposed to be raised to the top of the staff. Memorial Day is supposed to be a day both of memorial and mourning, but it is also supposed to be a day of celebration. I know you're aware of this, but I'll say it anyway. Uh, Memorial Day is no longer officially held on May 30th every year. Because in our vast wisdom and arrogance and foolishness as Americans, we've instead made it the last Monday of the month of May so that we can have a three-day weekend. It's sad, isn't it? This is why I have you have your phone out right now. Since the year 2000, it has been legally suggested by Congress that all Americans pause for a minute to have a national moment of remembrance at 3 p.m. on Memorial Day. 21 years we have been legally suggested to do just that. How many of you have actually ever done that? Take your phones, if you will, join me, and set an alarm for 3 p.m. tomorrow. So that no matter what you are doing, where you are, who you are with, (laughs) you take the time to celebrate and memorialize those people who died so that you could have the freedom to do whatever it is that you're doing at that moment. You and I, as Christians, are supposed to be good dual citizens. Obviously, we remember our citizenship is not here. It's, it's a gift from our one true king that we're allowed to be here in America. We, we need to remember that freedom costs. We need to remember that tomorrow is the day to remember those that we've lost. 3 p.m. tomorrow. Will you do it? Would you pray with me, Father? It is no surprise that many of us see tomorrow as a day off of work and school, maybe a day to sleep in. It's a day of joy, a day of family, a day of fun. It's the the start of summer. And those things are great, and all of those are gifts from you. Father, it's far more significant than that. So would you please lift the hearts of those, even those among us? Who see tomorrow as a painful reman- reminder of the loss that they've had. Would you strengthen those in our country who've lost family or friends? Would you comfort those whose loved ones have died in service to our country and protection of those without the same freedoms that we enjoy? And then may we have thankful hearts as we remember that they've given so that we might be free. May we have sympathetic hearts as we remember that what we have is the result of real men and real women, the moms, the dads, the brothers, the sisters, the sons, the daughters, who, are be, who have been willing to, to give their lives. So may we honor them well, both by pausing to, to memorialize them, but also in enjoying the freedoms that are ours as a result of their sacrifice. Father, would you forgive us for being so quick to forget, So Lord, thank you for our freedoms. Uh, Protect us from the very real danger of worshiping those freedoms or taking them for granted. Instead, may we make much of you in our country and around the world, taking full advantage of this gift that you have given to us. Lord, may we remember, for it's in Jesus' good name I pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so... Go ahead and, and, again, if you haven't gotten to Genesis 13 by this point, you can give up if you'd like. <laughs> this morning, what I, what I want to do is, is kind of walk through uh, at least two chapters, maybe three chapters, depending on where we are at the end of the, our time together, if I have time to get to chapter 15. Um, if not, no problem. I have an escape plan in chapter 14. Um, but what we're dealing with in these two chapters as we're looking at the life of Abram is 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 how do you live in this This no man's land between promise and experience. Between promise and experience. So Abram's been promised some great things. He just hasn't experienced them. So now he's in this this shadow land in the middle. How do you live in the middle of that? How do you live uh, in, in the middle of promise and experience? How does a child live when they are promised Disneyland next year? It's a long wait and there'll be times in that year where that child's like, "Ain't happening, Dad's lying. I can tell." And there's times where Dad's like, "Ain't happening. They ain't gonna live that long." <laughs> Sorry, we just came off family vacation. Can you tell? I'm <laughs> um, just kidding. Just kidding. <clears throat> um, and so, so there's this no man's land of living in the shadow of the promise before the the experience is given. To him. And so let me tell you at the beginning what I'm going to tell you at the end. How do you live between promise and experience? The answer is in faith. You're welcome. Right? It's the most churchy answer ever that really doesn't say anything. In faith. Let me further unpack that. In faith, celebrating that the fulfillment of God's future promise for you is guaranteed by his faithful past celebrating that God's future promise for you is guaranteed by his faithful past. So, so we, we are in the story of Abram. I think Patrick did a fantastic job last week unpacking the, the introduction to this fellow who is a nobody from nowhere, who's worshiping these gods who actually aren't really gods. He's this guy in chapter 12 who just told everyone his wife was his sister because he was afraid he might be murdered, so he lied about his wife and put her in danger, which, that's really smart. And now he's leaving the embarrassment of Egypt. He's returning to the place of good memories. Remember in chapter 12, he built an altar, then they went to Egypt, and now at the beginning of chapter 13, he's walking out of Egypt to the place of worship, to this, this altar that he had built um, in, in verse Three, the place between Bethel and AI, where the tent uh, well, sorry, where his tent had formerly been, to the site where he had built the altar. So imagine with me for a moment, and I'm sure you can, the walk out of Egypt to Bethel. Sarai is with him. I'm betting that was a very quiet walk. They get to this, this altar, they get to this. This place, you get this sense in verse 4 of chapter 13 that there is a repentant worship coming out of Abram. Abram called on the name of the Lord there. And so now we get into the meat of chapter 13 and a problem is introduced. See, all along the way, Abe has been accumulating stuff. Let me unpack that for you. Look, at, look back at chapter 12, verse 1. God calls Abram out from the land, right? Verse 4 Abram went. Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old. He left. Verse 5, he took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions that he had accumulated. Verse 16, now now Abram has lied about Sarai being his, his sister. Sarai is taken into basically the harem of Pharaoh. Pharaoh pays Abram. Look at verse Oh, let's see. Verse 16. He treated Pharaoh, treated Abram well because of her. Abram acquired flocks and herds, male and female donkeys, male and female slaves, and camels. We read that and we're like, okay, got a lot of stuff. Camels is a big deal. Camels was the Ford F-150 of the day. These things were unusual. They were unique. And here, Abram is gifted these things by Pharaoh. So he is accumulating more stuff. Verse 20. Then Pharaoh gave his men orders about Abram. They sent him away with his wife and all that he had. The idea of possessions, the idea of stuff just keeps coming up over and over again. Chapter 13, verse 1, he went up from Egypt to the Negev, he, his wife, and all that he had. Verse 2, Abram was very rich in livestock, silver, and gold. So so if you're not careful, you can read this and think, God said Abram would be blessed, right? And so that must mean all this material wealth and All this stuff, that must be God's blessing. We we know by experience, but we need to remind ourselves of the truth. More stuff does not equal God's blessing. Uh, I think, as I reflected on this story this week, if Abe didn't have the possessions that he had, how much simpler would his life have been just in chapter 12? You know, the famine comes And because Abraham has accumulated so much stuff, so many possessions, so much cattle, so much livestock, so many people, he had a ton of mouths to feed. And so that famine forced him into Egypt. If he didn't have all that stuff, all of those possessions, maybe the famine wouldn't have forced him into Egypt. Maybe he wouldn't have lied about his wife. Maybe he wouldn't be still sleeping on the couch. Maybe he wouldn't have the current conflict that he has in chapter 13 with Lot. Because Lot had a number of possessions as well. Possessions aren't evil. Stuff isn't sin. It's a gift that God has given to us to enjoy. You just got to keep it in the right seat on the bus. And when you, have, when you have to have all of the newest things, when you've got to have the newest phone, when you've got to have the biggest TV, when your truck has to have all the gadgets and the gizmos, when you have to have the nicest shoes, when the kitchen has to have just the right appliances and just the right recessed lighting and all of that, when all of that has to happen and things begin to create stress inside of you things begin to create the sense of frustration inside of you you can't let them go when stuff begins to create heartache and conflict in your family life in your relationships with the people that you love most then 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 they're no longer things that you possess they've become things that possess you Conflict between Abraham and Lot arises out of this issue of stuff. Verse 6, of chapter 13. The land was unable to support Abraham and Lot as long as they had stayed together. For they had so many possessions that they could not stay together. And there was quarreling between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And at that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were living in the land as well. There was quarreling happening between the herdsmen of Abraham and Lot. This word quarreling or or strife means claim, counterclaim, claim, counterclaim. It's, It's used later in Hebrew to talk about settling legal disputes. You're making your legal argument. So this conflict is rising up between the herdsmen of Abram and Lot, and they're having this stress and this difficulty, and I'm imagining that as Abram continues to see how significant and severe and serious this quarreling becomes, there's a sense of heartbreak in him. Lot's not just his nephew. You know that, right? Lot is, is... Abram's brother's son. That's his nephew, Frank. I know, but it's more than that. Abram's brother died. Haran died. And Abram took this kid under his wing. And now there's terrible tension that just keeps coming up. There's no solution to it. What are you going to do? Now, Abram, in this story, doesn't pull rank. He could. He could say, Lot, God spoke to me. He promised me a blessing, not you. So I'm going here. That's in the Hebrew. Actually, sounds like some Hebrew, but that's a whole different thing. <laughs> he, he actually serves Lot. He gives Lot the opportunity to choose which way he wants to go. Lot, you choose. And instead of deferring to Abram, which Lot probably should have done, It tells us that Lot lifted up his eyes. He, verse 10 of chapter 13, looked out and saw that the entire plain of the Jordan was, as far as Zoar, was well watered everywhere, like the Lord's garden and the land of Egypt. Lot picks up his eyes, he lifts up his eyes, he looked out and saw. That is a a picture of intense investigation, a, a survey. And as Lot surveys the land, the description of what he sees is intense, it's, it's, it's lavish. The area is well-watered, which is something significant in that area. It's well-watered, and as if that wasn't a big enough description, he says it's, it was like and it's compared to the Garden of God. It's also compared to the land of Egypt, which is a place that Lot just visited with Uncle Abe. And so as Lot looks out over the land and sees what he wants to see, he makes the decision to to head that way. Look verse 11. So Lot chose the entire plain of the Jordan for himself. Then Lot journeyed eastward, and they separated from each other. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, but Lot lived in the cities on the plain and set up his tent near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were evil, sinning immensely against the Lord. Now, now, while it's not the main point, there is significantly, uh, a, definitely a significant warning there for us. In chapter 13, verse 12, we're told that Lot heads towards Sodom. He sets up his tent near Sodom. We're given a little glimpse into what's happening at Sodom uh, at the end of verse 13. The men were evil, sinning immensely against the Lord. That's a few weeks from now. We'll get into that story. But, but in this moment, Lot looking out, Obviously, it was known here, Lot heads towards Sodom. He sets up his tent near Sodom. You get to chapter 14, verse 12, it says that Lot was living in Sodom. Then you get to chapter 19, verse 1, it says that Lot is sitting at the city gate of Sodom, which is where the judges of the city, the the city council would sit. So, so, though Sodom began his way towards Sodom, perhaps without the intention of going into Sodom, he was just going to be near Sodom, then suddenly he was in Sodom, and suddenly he was a leader of Sodom. Careful. <laughs> One decision can begin the slime trail that will lead you to a place you don't want to go. One choice selfish as it might be, harmless as you may convince yourself that it is, that places you in a situation where it's easier to do what is wrong than it is to do what is right, can lead to big problems, which we're going to see in just a few minutes. But first, I want to finish up chapter 13. Lot has now gone. He's headed towards Sodom, and Abram stays. And Think about what's going through Abram's mind right then. God has made a promise to Abram that he would have offspring and uh, be the father of many nations, and many nations would be blessed through him. He would be given a land. Abram has conflict with the one who he is closest to, Lot, and he gives Lot a choice, and Lot takes the choice, chooses what appears to be the absolute best, leaving Abram standing in the dust. It would appear that Abram, in his humility and in his kindness and his gesture towards Lot, has had this decision blow up in his face. In verse 14, After Lot had separated from him, the Lord said to Abram, Look from the place where you are. Look north, look south, look east, look west. I will give you and your offspring forever all the land that you see. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust of the earth, then your offspring could be counted. Get up, Abram. Walk around the land through its length, through its width, for I will give it to you. God says, Abram, I promised. I've got you. Don't worry about what this looks like. Don't worry about what this feels like. What I'm going to tell you is I promised you a land. All of this is yours. You're going to have children like the dust of the ground. Now what I want you to do, Abram, is I want you to march around the land like you are a conquering general seeing what it is that you just accumulated. I want you to walk around the land and begin to make your claim. What I find fascinating, one of my favorite pictures in the promise to Abram is that phrase, your children it'll be like the dust of the ground. There's a couple of reasons it's a powerful picture and an image, right? I mean, it even says that whoever can count the dust particles can count your children. That's a huge number. But it's not just a huge number, it's a constant reminder as God has said to Abram, walk through the land. What happens when Abram walks through the land? Poof, poof. As he steps, the dust just continues to explode from his feet, reminding him that God said, I promise you, your children will outnumber that. Do you live in that kind of confidence? Do you live in the promises that God has actually made to you? That he said he has you, even though at times it looks like you've been forgotten. Do you live in the confidence that God will never let you go? Hey, listen, I'm not saying you won't be disappointed. Great false teaching that's out there is God will never disappoint you. He will disappoint you. Because you think you know it all. You think you know what's best for you. And God says, no, it's not. I know it feels like it is. It's not. I know what's best for you. I will never let you down. I will never let you go. Do you live in that confidence? How will you need to live differently? How will you need to think differently in order to live like that? What do you need to change in your life so that you begin to live more by faith and not by sight? You've got to hear the renewed promise of God, who has never been thrown off track. And what he says to Abram, in a nutshell, it's verse 17, get up. Get up. I, I, I certainly can't imagine what you are going through today. Get up. God's got you. God's God's got you. He will never let go of you. He'll never let go of you. We'll talk a little bit more about that in just a moment. Chapter 14 begins, and you have this weird shift that occurs, right? Suddenly, we're talking about trouble in the nations. You have all these, these warring kings, and I'm going to butcher every name, so just buckle up, okay? You've got two groups of kings. The first is kind of the, the axis powers, the axis powers of evil. Think World War II. And you've got Amraphel, Arioch, Cheddar Lamor. We're going to call him Cheddar. Tidal. These, these, these uh, four are the powerful axis of evil. And then you have these. Five, Barah, birsha Shanab, Shamiber <laughs> Zohar. I know it's not Shamieber, but that's what I'm saying because that's cool. Those are the allies. And, and you have this conflict that arises between the Axis powers and the, and the allies because the allies say, hey, Cheddar, we ain't paying you. Oh, no, Cheddar anymore. <laughs> that's just like on the fly. I probably should have kept that one in, but we ain't paying you anymore. For some reason, they were paying like a protection pact with King Cheddar. And and the allies like, no, we're not paying anymore. After 13 years, we're done. No more paying you. And what, what Cheddar does is he leads the Axis powers towards the allied powers. And along the way, he wipes out the Rephaim, the Zuzim, the Emim, the Horites, those who live in Kadesh, the Amalekites, and the Amorites. So so this axis of evil is walking through the land, and they are wiping out people groups all around. What they're trying to do is to protect their flanks as they get ready to go after the allies. We also get to see the massive strength of these kings as they come off all these easy victories. And now that those smaller tribes and people groups have been conquered, Cheddar leads his kings to the Siddim Valley to take on the rebellious kings, the allies. And the battle is ugly. And the Axis powers annihilate the allies. The allies scatter and flee. Look at chapter 14, verse 10. The Siddim Valley contained many asphalt pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, who were part of the ally group, as they fled, some fell into those pits, but the rest fled to the mountains. The four kings, that's the Axis powers, took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food and went on. They also took Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions, for he was living in Sodom, and they went on. Now you understand how the story gets tied back to the story of Abram and Lot. Abram was, sorry, Lot was in the line of fire, and he's taken captive. Somebody escapes the battle, runs to Abram and tells him, your nephew Lot has been taken captive by Cheddar and the boys. (laughs) It's the New Frank translation. (laughs) So what Abram does then is he he gathers, you can see this in... um, Uh, Verse 14, let me just read verse 14. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken prisoner, he assembled his 318 trained men born in his household, and they went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he and his servants deployed against them by night, defeated them, and pursued them as far as Hobah to the north of Damascus. He brought back all the goods, and also his relative Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the other people. Abram hears that Lot has been taken captive. He takes his 318 homegrown, home-trained militiamen, and probably a, a few others, which as you read the chapter, you see that, and, and he heads out at night to attack the powers, the, the Axis powers, Cheddar and the guys, and he is going to bring back those things that they have taken, those things that they have assimilated, those people that they have taken captive. Abram, with this very small force of, of men, has just taken on the four greatest powers of the then known world and has had complete and total unexpected victory. This is, this is the picture of a, of a man of faith at times becoming a man of valor, a man of war. His strategy, his timing, win the day as he delivers all of those people taken captive, including Lot. Um, we were talking as a family. Um, we talked actually every Sunday afternoon um, about the message. <laughs> we the question every week is the same question: What'd you learn today? And so people have to come up and stuff. It's amazing. We've been doing it for 20 years, and every week it's like a surprise to everybody that I'm going to ask them that question. Um, what'd you learn today? Oh, How did you not know this was coming? Parenting. I'm killing it. Um, So so we were talking, though, and I was sharing mine last week, just that this time through the study of Genesis, I've been reminded time and time again that that Genesis' primary audience is the people of God, the Israelites, as they're entering the promised land. And, and, And so as they are hearing this story, what God is trying to communicate to his people is how many times he's actually come through for them. Because the Israelites, as they entered the Promised Land, and us, we need to remember God's great victories of the past. It's funny, verses 1 through 16, God's name isn't even mentioned. But he is very much in control. We get a little hint of that in verses 19 and 20, which we're going to talk about specifically in a moment. But, but King Melchizedek, who does he give credit for the victory to? Verse 20 Blessed be God most high who's handed over your enemies to you. He says, God was not only in this, he did this. So as the children of Israel stood between promise of the promised land and the experience of the promised land, they needed these reminders to fuel their faith. God will work in the future just as he has in the past. So God's at work right now in the grittiness of life. And, and, and I'm going to be honest with you. It isn't pretty. It isn't lollipops, sunshine, and rainbows. God's at work in the disappointment. God's at work in the uh, unfairness. God's at work in the injustice. God's at work in your hurt feelings. God's at work in the conflict within your family. God is at work in, in, in the ugly times. He is at work. You need to stop and look back so you can look forward. That's what the whole point of Philippians 4 is. Let me put this up here. I love these verses. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. What what God is telling us here is like, listen, bring your prayer bring your supplications when you are anxious when you are worried when, when these things are filling you full of concern what I want you to do is I want you to pray and, and it's not just oh Lord I'm so worried amen it says I want you to pray with thanksgiving man we forget that don't we what do you, how do you pray with thanksgiving you say God what have you done for me and it's usually how mine start fine God now what, what have you done okay I should probably answer that doesn't take long, does it? I have a heart that's beating right now. And I'm not making it beat. And I refuse to eat kale to make it beat better. (laughs) And he's got me. My lungs are able to take air. Oxygen get it through my body. My God protected my wife a number of times, but one in particular where she, she shouldn't be here. My God knows what he's doing. And as you pray with thanksgiving, you're reminded of how good he is, even in the stuff that didn't feel good at the time. God says, pray like that. Live like that. Like you remember how God has done things in the past. The enemy wants you to doubt the power of God. The enemy also wants you to doubt his willingness to help you. God says, pray, pray, pray with thanksgiving. Be exuberant about it. God, look what you have done for me. Yes, Lord, you know what? This still hurts but you haven't let me go. You're still here with me, and just as you did these things, you will do this. It's, it's David, right? It's David. And then I was a little shepherd boy. Is was out there. The lion came. And I went, and I got it. Then the bear came. Got that. And then he says, just like that, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion, the paw of the bear, is going to rescue me from the hand of that big, ugly Philistine. Just like he did, he will. It, it's it's um, I read. Uh, I don't have time for this, but that's okay. Um, my own devotions this morning. Second Corinthians chapter one. I was reading. I'm like, that's my message. Oh no, we're gonna be here all day. <laughs> Amen. Verse eight. Second Corinthians chapter one. Paul's writing the Corinthians. Says, listen, I, we don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of our affliction that took place in Asia. We don't want you to not hear about how difficult things were for us in Asia. We're not hiding anything from you, brothers and sisters. It stunk. It was terrible. We were completely overwhelmed, beyond our strength, so we even despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death so that we would not trust ourselves but in the one who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a terrible death, and he will deliver us. We have put our hope in him that he will deliver us yet again. How do you live in the middle of promise and experience In faith, you live knowing and celebrating the fulfillment of God's future promise for you is guaranteed by his faithful past. Abe is no longer a coward in Egypt. He's a man of valor, and there's two kings that show up to celebrate his valor, to celebrate his victory. Let me touch on these. Some of you are going to be sorely disappointed with my handling of King Melchizedek, who's going to happen in a minute and a half. First king that shows up is King Sodom King of Sodom. He lost in that battle to Cheddar. Lost all his people, lost all his stuff. He he shows up. He's been humiliated. He's probably slinking out of the shadows. Maybe he fell in one of those asphalt pits. So he's still swiping himself off. And Abe is actually the I keep calling him Abe. Sorry. Abram. We're tight. Abram uh, basically just rescued him, his leadership, his country. And so the king of Sodom should come with gratefulness and thankfulness. He should come with this level of appreciation and, 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 and just awe. And instead, chapter 14, verse 21, you get this. The king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the people, but take the possessions for yourself. The king of Sodom basically says, good job. Keep the stuff. Give me my people. And we get to see a little bit of a change in Abram. You see a man who's starting to get it. Verse 22, Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand in an oath to the Lord God, most high creator of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that belongs to you, so you can never say, I made Abram rich. I'll take nothing except for what the servants have eaten. But as for the share of the men who came with me, Aner, uh, Aner Eshkol, and Mamre, they, they can take their, their share. What, what we begin to see in Abram is, I don't want your stuff. I'm not even going to take a shoelace from you. You will never be able to say that you made me. You didn't make me. God made me. He will continue to make me. He will fulfill his word to me. And I don't ever want to confuse that message to a watching world. The other king is this very famous king named Melchizedek. King Melchizedek. King of Salem. Okay, so his name means, Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Righteousness. His title is King of Salem, that's Jerusalem. He can also be, be known as the King of Peace. He's the first priest that is mentioned. He was a priest to the Most High God, verse 18 of chapter 14. He's the first priest mentioned in the Bible. Abram recognizes King Melchizedek as a as a picture of God, as a picture, as a representative of God. And so he gives him tithes out of everything. That's the end of verse 20. Gave him a tenth of everything. So, so, okay. Uh, again, this is going to be the, oh, you could talk about this for hours and hours and hours, and I could, but I will not. Um, king Melchizedek is mentioned in Psalm 110. He's mentioned in Hebrews 5, 6, and 7. So who is he? Some people think Melchizedek is actually Shem, because Shem is still alive at this time. He would have lived for 35 years after Abram had died. So some believe that this is Shem and that this is his title. It's Shem. He is the king of, of, of Salem. Um, I don't think that, that, that doesn't matter. Some, actually, it matters, but it doesn't matter. Uh, some think this is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Some believe that this is, this is Jesus before Jesus was born in the he, he comes and makes an appearance here. That That's very possible. Um, the other uh, option, and this is the one that I land on, is that this is a real king or priest. Melchizedek was a historical king or priest who is a type of Jesus who who points to who, who, who Jesus is. And, and the reason I land there is this. As, as Hebrews deals with Melchizedek, Hebrews, understand the context of Hebrews. Hebrews is always saying, we were talking about this morning, Gene uh, and I were talking about it, upgrades. And the upgrade is Jesus. Jesus is better than, and he walks into something, he's better than Moses. He's better than the angels. He's a better sacrifice. He's a better offering. He's a better priest. He's a better high priest. Remember the, the blood of Abel cries out from the ground, but but Jesus' blood cries out something better. Abel cries out for justice, where Jesus' blood cries out for forgiveness. And then, and then you get into Hebrews, and what you find is that Jesus is a better Melchizedek. Um, here's Hebrews 7:3 without father and mother, genealogy, talking about Melchizedek. Having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. That, that's what pushes me over the edge to think he is a type, because it says he is resembling the Son of God, not that he is uh, the, the, the Son of of God. Here, here's what I think the lesson of Melchizedek is, and this is where I'm going to land. Hey, think of this. I thought I was going to get through chapter 15. Ha. Um, Melchizedek um, it became this incredibly popular character in, in, in Jewish history, in Jewish religion. And he should have. It's not inappropriate. It's right. He, here comes Abram having this incredible victory as given by God. Here comes this mysterious man who doesn't have a genealogy, doesn't have mother or father mentioned. He just shows up. And when he shows up, he shows up to celebrate what God did. Right? You, you hear his words. Uh, Abram is blessed by God most high creator of heaven and earth and blessed be God most high who has handed over your enemies to you he's he's shown up to celebrate what God had done for him Abram is blessed by the most high God the, the most high God is to be thanked he's to be celebrated for what he has done for you and so you see what he does right Did, did, did you? I don't know if I read it <laughs> so maybe I should verse 18 Melchizedek king of Salem brought out bread and wine He was a priest to the Most High God. He says, we're going to celebrate what God has done for you. We're going to celebrate how God has moved on your behalf. And here it is, some bread, some wine. Ever seen that before? We're going to celebrate what God has done for you. As we look at this picture that Jesus left for us. The fact that Jesus had his body broken because of your sin. His blood shed for you. The one who deserved to be carried away like Lot. Didn't deserve rescue. And Jesus says, this is worth a party. We're, we're going to party again the next time, Jesus says to the disciples, next time that I'd eat of the bread and drink of the wine, the next time I celebrate this banquet, it will be... In heaven with you. We're going to celebrate what it is that God has done for you. Do you know what God has done for you? Do you understand fully that God has rescued you from your pit of despair through his son, Jesus Christ, who died where you should have died? Do you understand what it is that God has done for you? Then live like it. How do you live between promise and experience? You you live in faith, celebrating the fulfillment of God's future promise for you, knowing that it's guaranteed by his faithful past. See what he's done for you? For you. So as you walk your life, Experiencing the ups and downs and the grittiness of today and tomorrow. Walk in faith. Not perfect. I would love for you to walk perfectly, but you're going to mess it up. Not as bad as I am. And then celebrate God's promise of forgiveness as you remember how he forgave you already. Live in faith. Trusting in him. Knowing that his future promise has been guaranteed by his faithful past, Would you pray with me, Father, thank you for your Son Jesus Christ. Thank you that he was willing to leave heaven, to come to earth, to shed his blood, to die for the sins of, of humanity, by, by taking their place where they deserved to die, those who deserved no pardon, and in so doing gave them a rescue, forgiveness saved them, adopted them into your family. Father, I ask that for the one who's sitting here who who has never responded to that open invitation of God himself. God, I pray that right now they would simply call to you. That they would trust Jesus Christ. They would call on his name as their savior. And Father, for the rest of us who know you, I pray that you would give us strength and grace to live in faith. Father, please, I pray that you would that you would fuel our faith with memory. Even, even as tomorrow's, there's a small microcosm of it that we take time to remember. God, may we take time to remember your past faithfulness. Give us the strength we need to live in these moments in a way that puts a smile on your face. May we trust you and trust you well. It's in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.